Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Washington Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. A bipartisan tax bill passes in the House. A border deal to clear more Ukraine funding hangs in the balance. The European Union approves $54 billion in economic aid for Kiev as Vladimir Zelensky fires his popular chief of defense staff, General Valery Zaluzhny. Washington Telegraph strikes on pro-Iranian proxies in Syria and Iraq in retaliation for Tehran-backed militia attacks that killed three Americans and wounded 40. Beijing continues to purge military leaders most recently, its top rocket scientists, as U.S. and Chinese leaders meet to de-escalate tensions uh, between the two nations. The Gaza war continues as the Biden administration sanctions for Israelis for their role in violence in the West Bank against Palestinians. Joining us today to discuss all this and more uh, in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, uh, welcome back. Great to have you back on on this Groundhog Day uh, so that we give uh, a, a note, uh, a nod to the great movie. Uh, if any of the people in the audience are asking why this discussion sounds perilously like other discussions we have, Michael, uh, as you've noted before, right, this is like the infrastructure measure. We talked about it every week until it happened. So maybe there's some some nice uh, karma in that. Anyway, uh, start us off, Michael. House passes a bipartisan tax bill, which um, you know is is great news, especially for its uh, child tax credits. Uh, but border talks are still rocky. Uh, the House uh, is moving to impeach uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who's key in any border deal that would clear uh, much needed uh, Ukraine funding. The president said he's willing to close the border to get the money for Kiev, while Republicans who've always said they wanted a border deal and closing the border has been almost like a fantasy come true, are now saying, Eh, we're not really that interested in a border deal, even if some uh, Senate senators are, are close to a bipartisan measure. Where do we stand and how's the mechanics all interplay on this? So we've got this really strange dichotomy going on between those two things you mentioned, between the tax bill that just passed the House and the supplemental, right? Because the tax bill this is this bipartisan bill that passed the House that could be dead in the Senate. And then we have this bipartisan potential deal on a supplemental in the Senate that could be dead in the House. So the House uh, passed this bipartisan uh, tax measure earlier this week, which, as you mentioned, expands the child tax credit, but it also revives uh, business tax breaks. The defense industry was very interested in this because it uh, brought back the deduction for business research and development costs that were cut back uh, during the Trump tax cuts. And a lot of small businesses who work in the defense industry especially were complaining that they had to cut back on R&D as a result and also cut back on employment. So that was a, a big win, and, and that passed 357 to 70. Uh, but now uh, it looks like it could be in trouble in the Senate for a variety of reasons. One, uh, the Senate's got a huge logjam in their calendar. They've got to deal with the supplemental. Nothing happens fast in the Senate. That will take weeks. Um, they have to do FAA reauthorization. If Mayorkas is impeaching, impeached, which we'll get to in a minute, they have to hold a trial over there. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, you have Republicans saying that they may block this, uh, this bill unless they get a, a chance to amend it on the floor because they want to toughen the work requirements for that expanded uh, child tax credit. And because we're in election year, 
uh, Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa said that he thinks that passing a tax bill that makes the president look good mailing out checks before an election means that we can help him get reelected. Uh, and then we won't be able to extend uh, the Trump tax cuts permanently without a Trump presidency. So that was really kind of a, a stunning uh, admission. Uh, then we get over to the supplemental. And as I mentioned previously, I'm, 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 I was hearing more and more over the last few weeks that there's a possibility it could break out the Israel aid separately. And there was a, a, a push again this week from both Republicans in the Senate and Republicans in the House, especially Kevin Hearn in Oklahoma, which is a name a lot of people don't know, but he's a major player because he chairs the Republican Study Committee. And right. uh, and he's one that I've always felt that is one of the few guys like Johnson could get the full support of the conference to be a speaker at some point. Uh, and he is floating the idea of a clean uh, bill with no offsets. And I think the House Republicans recognize that when they did pass the Israel aid, they made a mistake by attaching those IRS offsets to it. But uh, the border still continues to be the main problem over in the Senate. And the goal is to get half of the Republican senators on this bill, one to show they had support from the Republicans, but two, they're going to lose Democrats on this vote. And those chances, according to the the, the whip in the Senate, the Republican whip, uh, are getting worse by the day and headed in the wrong direction. Uh, and a lot of the House's hostility toward this bill is a factor that Republicans are taking into consideration. Why should they vote for this if it doesn't stand a chance in the House? And Senator Lankford, who's led uh, the negotiations on this, has expressed a lot of frustration. Uh, and he's told reporters that he's reached out to the Speaker's office several times to attempt to clear up a lot of the misinformation that's being spread out there, which there is. Johnson's office responded that Lankford uh, has not provided the Speaker with proposed legislative text or written description of the new expulsion authority. Uh, and then, you know, to make matters worse, you know, we have House Republicans. Uh, and you know, including uh, Donald Trump, that are now arguing, as you mentioned, that a uh, legislative fix to the migrant crisis may not be necessary at all, even though that's always been their position. And now you have several senators in, in, in the Senate, uh, Republican senators, embracing this argument. Uh, and Senator Ted Cruz, for example, uh, just came out earlier this week saying we don't need a border bill, even though that's the opposite of what his position has been. And it's been the reason for holding up Ukraine aid. So if we right. don't need a border bill, why then hold up Ukraine? And then at the same time, if this bill is able to get out of, out of the Senate, uh, you've got opposition from Republicans in the House. You now have opposition from, from Democrats in the House. You have the Progressive Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus all saying that they've been cut out of the negotiations as well. They don't like it. They want to see more of an immigration bill, uh, you know, protection for asylum seekers and also a way, right. a path to citizenship for people who are here already. So I see, I think Schumer says he's going to release text as soon as today, at the latest uh, by the end of the weekend. Uh, and they will begin procedural votes on, on it next week. And I got to say, I give them credit. The, to keep the discussion going, they've got to be moving this along. So we are going to see uh, a bill soon and, uh, and and votes in the Senate. We do need to touch just briefly on impeachment because it you know goes into this whole crazy argument on the border. You know, uh, you're, you're so upset about the border, but yet you're going to you're going to impeach the the one cabinet official that oversees the border. Right. Uh, and on Tuesday, the House Homeland Security Committee did vote along party lines to impeach uh, Mayorkas, uh, saying he's guilty of willful and systematic refusal to comply with the law uh, and a breach of public trust. And now the House may uh, vote on impeachment as soon as as, as next week. Uh, right. Now, there are some Republicans who are against it. Uh, they can only afford to lose two. They have two right now that are against. I've talked to other Republicans that also might be against. There's no guarantee that this does uh, happen. And you also have a lot of conservative voices on the outside. Uh, like Alan Dershowitz and Jonathan Turley, also saying this is a very bad idea uh, and really distorts the Constitution. And they really have put 
fail to put forth the evidence that he's guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. So um, it's it's really going to be a very fascinating week next week on both counts. Uh, listen, to to say that it's a crap show up there is a modest understatement, uh, even if uh, some folks are individually trying to do uh, the, the the right thing. R- really quickly, uh, talk to us about uh, appropriations and, and where we stand on it. And also give us a percentage, right? Does Ukraine aid happen or not at, at this point, you know, if, if you're going to handicap it, right? Hit really those quickly before we have to move on to what our European friends and others have been doing around the world. Sure. So, look, uh, appropriations right now, I think, is the good news story. Uh, they, shortly after our, our show last week on Friday, uh, they did get what they call the 302B allocation. So how the money will be spread out among the 12 appropriations bills. So they've been actively writing them. Uh, I believe that they will be done in time uh, before the March 1st and March 8th deadlines. Uh, I also do believe that the Republicans will end up caving on most of the policy writers because these bills will have to be done on suspension of the rules, which means they get needed two thirds vote, which means you need a lot of Democratic votes to pass them. Uh, I think they, they will get passed. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about appropriations, should mention just really briefly uh, that the Congressman Dutch Ruppersberger did announce that he is uh, retiring. Uh, you know, he is a guy that's got a, uh, you know, a strong bipartisan background. It means that two of the Democrats on defense appropriations, both Dutch Ruppersberger and Dem- Derek Kilmer, will not be returning next year. Uh, it's a shame because those are two very bright guys, big leaders in uh, defense and national security. Ruppersberger also was a senior Democrat on intelligence. On intelligence committee for years with his counterpart Mike Rogers worked in a very bipartisan uh, fashion to uh, you know secure America's uh, liberties and freedoms, and he's going to be missed. Uh, in, indeed, uh, someone who's uh, done a terrific job in every job that he's done, and he's bipartisan. But he's seventy-eight, and he's had a great run. Uh, and I can completely understand his sentiment to want to take <laughs> to put the pencil down and 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 hand the baton over uh, to others. He's also uh, you know a ranking member on in, in intelligence uh, as well, um, Jim. Uh, let's uh, move uh, to um, the entire uh, aid situation, right? I mean, the United States is absolutely critical when it comes to military aid, uh, and that's still in the balance. But it looks like the EU can actually get stuff done despite having a pro-Putin stooge uh, like Viktor Orban trying to gum up uh, the works uh, incessantly. We'll get to Sweden in, in just a second. But $54 billion, uh, 50 billion euros over the next four years certainly is a major achievement, and it passed unanimously. Uh, and is absolutely a critical uh, lifeline. What, what, what does this mean? How important is it politically and otherwise? And do you think that it adds to any of the pressure or the dynamic in the United States to get its act together? Well, um, that's really interesting. Uh, first, that the, the, your last question about does it pressure uh, anyone in the in the U.S. or in Washington or in the Congress uh, about the U.S. situation? I. Uh, you know, I think what it does, actually, it really wakes up downtown Washington within the Beltway, Washington, that the EU has now developed the capability to actually influence things in a big way. They've come they started this with COVID, COVID relief to uh, to European nations a few years ago. And now with this, they've showed that they've got the muscle and the money uh, to really impact uh, issues. And I think this is this is something that is uh is new, perhaps, to some people in Washington who think the EU is feckless and can't do anything. And frankly, that was a bit of the case in the past. But it's the great news that they were able to do this. They're great news they're able to muscle uh, Orban out of the way, which they did in a very intricate uh, ballet during this emergency summit that they had. They're still going to have to deal with them in the in the in the future, but they've shown they can overcome this guy, so which is great. Uh, in terms of uh, will this help move the needle on the U.S. package, I don't I don't think so. Uh, I, I mean, Michael's a better judge than I, but 
but but I think things that the EU does doesn't necessarily move our own politics and our own dysfunction within the Congress. But for Ukraine, um, this is critical and, and as just a signal uh, to Ukraine um, and the Ukrainian people that that the EU uh, still has their back. The EU isn't fading away. Um, and uh, and so that's that's reassuring. And this is economic assistance, a lot of it. And that's critical to keep uh, to keep Ukraine going. We focus here in Washington on a lot of the military stuff of uh, this economic uh, loans and grants, this package over four years. So it's just, you know, it's going to be spread thin, uh, but it's critical. But the signal also was sent to Moscow that that Europe isn't walking back. And I think uh, Moscow, the Kremlin, probably thought the Europeans would be the first to uh, race for the exits, but they're not. Uh, and they were able to do something about their man, uh, Putin's man, uh, uh, Orban, as well. So that's uh, quite a message to, to to Moscow. So so this is a this is a great victory. And hats off to Ursula von der Leyen um, uh, and and all those folks there. One more quick point, uh, Vago, sure. and that is Mark Rut Mark Rutter, who was the um, he's he's the outgoing um, uh, prime, minister prime minister in the, in the yeah in the Netherlands. If he becomes uh, the section, the NATO section, which is kind of the, the the rumor du jour, although it's been a rumor for a while, if in fact he becomes the boss out there at NATO, he's proven now he knows how to handle Hungary in an international right. in a European organization. So, so he'll come to NATO uh, equipped with some tools on how to deal with countries around the NAC table who like to grandstand and uh, and cause trouble. Uh, in order to get their way on various issues. Let, let me uh, just quickly, uh, 30 uh, seconds or less, uh, Michael, does uh, the fact that you passed this change any of the dynamics up on the Hill? That's a good question. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that yesterday. Um, look, and I didn't answer your question earlier about the chances of Ukraine funding. Like, I think it shows that the, the European support, I think is really important. And I do think it helps keep this debate alive. Um, I, there's a lot of people that want to get there. They just can't figure out how to get there. And the Republicans do keep moving the goalposts. But I just think this debate is yeah. far from over. I, 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 uh, I, you know how much I respect you. They don't want to do it. I think that they've gotten a message from the boss of the party. Do not do this. I don't like Ukrainians. I like Putin. And I think that people are falling in line, especially the closer he gets to the finish line. Uh, that's that's still my sense. If they wanted to do it, they would do it. They just don't I, want to I, do it. Because there are I think they of, feel their are, skins are vulnerable. Right. I agree. Look, there are a lot that don't want to do it, right? But there are a lot to do, and their skins become less vulnerable as they get past their primaries. And right. we have a lot of primaries coming up in March, and I think that people can be bolder once they get past their primaries and, and past their filing deadlines. And, and if there are any Ukrainian troops that are still alive to fight, we will send them a couple of bags of donuts. So that's, <laughs> uh, that's good. Um, uh, uh, Patrick, let me quickly uh, bring you in uh, on, on, on this, and I'm going to get to the Dove uh, in, a, in a second. Does this change the dynamic at all? for uh, the Chinese as they're watching this? I mean, does this move the needle, you know, as, as Jim said, sort of moves uh, the EU into a more of a, a player uh, position given the magnitude of this of this package? Do you think that it changes the dynamic at all from somebody sitting in Beijing? Well, the Chinese have not been happy with the EU on technology policy, um, and they're clearly not going to be happy to see that the EU is weighing in heavily to keep Ukraine in the fight. Um, but, uh, their interests continue to be uh, divert the West's forces uh, away from Asia and try to avert large-scale escalation that would pull in and threaten their interests in other ways. So 
you know, they, they can live with this. Um, but no, they're not happy to see that their geostrategic partner, Russia, uh, is is now facing a more, uh, once again, aligned transatlantic alliance. Dove, uh, let me bring you into this. Uh, we've uh, talked about all the horse training that would be required to get the Turks over the finish line. Uh, Washington, Turkey uh, voted to allow uh, Sweden uh, to join NATO. Uh, Viktor Orban is uh, the hang up. Washington has cleared 40 F-16s. Uh, as promised uh, to Ankara, uh, but also approved 40 F-35s for Athens, which I think is interesting, uh, and apparently threw in two C-130Hs as part of the deal uh, as well. Buy 40, get two. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Lockheed sale. Um, what's it going to take, do you think, to get Orban uh, over the finish line on Sweden now that the you know EU managed to manhandle him into a, into what he should have done in the first place? Well, I think uh, it's it's an indicator that he's going to cave on this, too. Remember, he has said that he will not block Sweden if uh, Turkey goes ahead and approves it. And Turks have done that. Um, now he's caved to the EU. Uh, I think he'll cave. Um, they keep saying that he will. It's just a matter of timing. He tried to get the uh, Swedish prime minister to come and negotiate with him and was told, heck no. Uh, so that one failed. I don't know what else he's going to try. I think he's basically holding out to show Putin how long he's been able to hold out. But he'll give way on that. By the way, on the EU influence in Congress, I, I, I'm totally in agreement. I think it has no, nothing to do with the way Congress will go. But I, I have heard from the Democratic side uh, that they're thinking just like they might break off Israel and are likely to break off Israel, they'll break off Ukraine as well. Probably, uh, like Michael says, uh, after the, uh, you know, a lot of these primaries are done. Uh, but if you think about it, that makes sense anyway, because, you know, they've got to still pass the defense budget, uh, the defense appropriation, which probably won't happen until March. Uh, and then they'll take this thing up. So uh, I think it all falls together. And around that time, it may well be that Orban uh, gives way or gives way at, at you know, there's going to be a NATO summit here in Washington. And my guess is this is when he's going to say, OK, I'm going to be a hero and I'm going to let the Swedes in. J uh, Jim, do you agree with that take? Uh, yes, I agree with Dove completely and, and Michael on, on, on what they were just saying. But I do want to just to emphasize one point about the F-35s to Greece. That that was interesting, but but it's actually an old 7-10 uh, ratio uh, type of thing that we used to do in the foreign military sales program uh, back during the Cold War days uh, where we tried to have this balance between Greece and Turkey, um, uh, a 7 10 ratio of assistance of, of Turkey to Greece. And um, and that kind of went away uh, over the past 10, 15 years. We didn't hold to it so much in terms of our assistance. So when it came back right. uh, with this F-16s to Turkey and then there was something in there for Greece, I have to say myself and probably some of the old old timers out there were recognized that as, as, as a variation on the old 7-10 ratio. And that type of thing probably helped get votes, if you not votes, but it certainly got congressional support. Um, there's a very large and uh, influential Greek uh, uh, group there in on the hill, and uh, Turkey is not popular on the hill. So I think this probably helps sweeten right. the pot a bit, uh, having go, having a bit of the seven ten ratio and making sure Greece got something in the deal. 
a, a quick word from our sponsors. This program is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Um, let me uh, shift. Uh, we've got so much more ground to cover, but I have to ask this question about uh, General, uh, excuse me, uh, Vladimir Zelensky's decision uh, to effectively fire Valery Zeluzhny, who is the chief of staff. He's very popular. Zeluzhny has said he's not going to go. Um, Zelensky has uh, fired uh, senior leaders before, including at the top ranks of the defense ministry. Uh, every time a corruption story has come up or something like that. And many of the people in his administration have said, hey, look, you know, a bad on me. I should have stopped that. You know, and, and Zelensky was always clear. I'm not firing you because personally, it's just the organization aired and somebody has to be held accountable. Um, does this hurt Ukraine at an inopportune time? Dove, is the timing of this really bad? Um, because, you know, Ukraine is in a different place now than it was a couple of years ago. Even if it's holding the line against the Russians, it's holding the line against the Russians with high casualties. Well, it doesn't help uh, for two reasons. One, you know, Zelensky is up for re-election, too, and he's less popular than Zeluzhny. Uh, and what it looks like with Zeluzhny refusing to leave uh, is a chaotic leadership. Nobody's arguing that there isn't corruption. And one of the arguments that the Republican opponents of aid have said is, why are we giving money to a country where we don't know where the money is going? Uh, and so you've got a combination of things that could make it hard. I still think there's a majority uh, on on both sides of the aisle that will support Ukraine, but it may be one last time. And uh, we have to just recognize that this is not an automatic thing anymore, even if they get the money this time. Uh, uh, Jim, uh, do you think that this is something that's very problematic for Zelensky or the war effort more broadly? Well, you know, I, I, it, these, that's a hard question really for us to answer thousands of miles away. You know, there's, you can list all the very good things that the general did, uh, particularly before the war broke out to protect Ukraine troops. And that first year, a lot of the moves that the Ukrainians made that so thrilled the West, you know, was, it was his, his doing. Uh, but, you know, one thing, as we all know, if you look at military history, this is not unusual. Um, having uh, having leadership changes uh, in the middle of the war, uh, unpopular leadership changes, because you're right, the, the general is very popular among the Ukraine people. There is an election uh, coming up uh, for Zelensky. And so I guess what, what I'm saying is it's hard for us to really pass judgment from our armchairs here in Washington right. on something where there's always a lot of behind the scenes stuff that you don't know is happening until the memoirs come out right. later on. You don't know what's happening. And so for us to to make a judgment right now on that very uh, important topic is tough. Uh, and I, obviously it does impact uh, Ukraine and impacts in various ways within the military ranks and, and that type right. of thing. Uh, but I, 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 I can't say whether it, that yes or no, this was good or not. Right. It, it, it will yeah, be problematic, but, but there might have been some good reasons. We just don't know. And uh, very quickly, right? I mean, it's a uh, it's a matter of public record. The tensions uh, between Zeluzhny as well as uh, Zelensky, right? When Zeluzhny was saying, "Hey, the counteroffensive is stalled. We're not getting right. anywhere," uh, right. you know, and and that went very badly with his boss. Dove, uh, really quickly to you before we go to Patrick. 
Yeah, I, I wasn't talking about how it works inside Ukraine. I was focusing on how it works over here. And, and Jim is absolutely right. right. Nobody really knows the whole story and won't for a while. But I think it is not helping matters over on the Hill where Ukraine needs all the help it can get. Right. Uh, right. In, in, indeed. Uh, Patrick, uh, let me uh, bring you uh, into this great investigation by The Washington Post, uh, unfortunately appearing to implicate Taiwanese firms. Uh, that appear to be supplying precision machining equipment to Russia that's helping Moscow's uh, war uh, machine. How significant a story is this? And what's the right response from Washington uh, if it's confirmed to be true? Although it appears, you know, the third party, you know, entities are managing to get this equipment over uh, to uh, the Russians circumventing U.S. sanctions. Well, the report seems credible and it's uh, it's a devastating blow when you have a, a partner like Taiwan provide precision machine tools to Russia when you're trying to sanction them. But, you know, this happens. Uh, and with and all Washington is trying to do all it can to help you against the Chinese, right? It's yeah, kind exactly. Of an interesting dynamic. But this isn't from the Taiwan government. This this is truly uh, the private sector, basically an unscrupulous business, uh, 60 plus shipments, uh, tens of millions of dollars of precision tools, if these reports are accurate. And and I have no reason to, to think they're not. Um, you know, the mainland is providing much more than this, presumably, Correct. but you don't expect your partners and allies to uh, to hurt your cause, especially when you're helping them. You know, p sanctions are a penalty. They're not a panacea. Uh, they always leak. Um, so this is not a big surprise. And Russia was always going to have a bigger set of arms than Ukraine. Nonetheless, uh, it it's something that has to stop. The good news here is that, uh, you know, now that we're on to Alexei uh, Brahidkin's uh, wily ways of, of winning uh, machine tools from, <laughs> from Taipei, um, we can plug those gaps. We can stop Taiwan. They, we, they'll cooperate with us. Uh, and at least we can, we can stop this going forward. But, you know, it, it, this should never have happened. Speaking of Wiley, uh, let's uh, get to uh, a little bit of the negotiations that are happening on both sides, uh, the U.S. Uh, as well as the Chinese side. Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi uh, met uh, this week as part of the effort to sort of uh, reset and reboundary maybe uh, the relationship, right? But both sides are being very candid. We will disagree on what we can we're going to disagree on. Uh, we will resume contacts, military to military links and others uh, and try to cooperate where we can. Is there anything significant uh, in in the wake of their meeting? You know, I should also note to people in, in the Hill, you had a great piece about North Korea, you know, saying, hey, look, everybody thinks there's a war. You discussed last week why you thought that that, that wasn't the case. Uh, and against that backdrop, the, the Chinese, uh, you know, uh, fired uh, the country's top rocket scientist. Put all of this into, into context, uh, if you will, because there are some folks who are trying to make sense of all of these different threads. Well, let's just pick up with the rocket scientists first, because that's a specific issue of uh, the anti-corruption drive that uh, is ongoing and has been ongoing since she's been in power, preceded she, but he he kind of stepped it up, especially early on. He was doing the vetting of very deep down into PLA officers. Um, he stopped doing that after about three or four years, um, and maybe it shows right now because there's a lot more corruption, it seems, lately, uh, especially in the rocket forces, but not just that. This one scientist who helped with the spacecraft for cargo, um, you know, is booted off a political committee. That's not a big surprise. If, you know, Vago, the numbers here in China, 110,000 party members were disciplined last year alone uh, for corruption. That's the Chinese number. Um, you know, so this is not uh, a rare occurrence, but it does point to a bigger problem. And that's that 
Xi Jinping has never built up the trust with the PLA leadership. Now, that's not all good news for us because it may right. mean that th those really ambitious officers who want to swear allegiance to Xi are getting promoted uh, and, uh, and and may want to prove their worth. So, you know, it's an ongoing uh, challenge, but it does, it does on balance say that uh, you're not going to send your uh, forces into Taiwan to invade tomorrow if you can't trust your rocket forces that are responsible for your strategic weapons. Um, at least that's the reading out of a major PLA conference I was at earlier this week. Now, as for the U.S.-China uh, high-level dialogue that uh, Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi um, sort of goosed forward uh, in Bangkok last weekend, um, th their secret talks are, are meant to be just that, so they can control the narrative out of both Beijing and Washington, and they right. say very little. And the same thing that they're saying so far, there's no there there. You know, the the, the curbing fentanyl again, you feel like uh, the Chinese have us on a, on a slow IV drip of narcotics, you know, because the only metric that matters to us has to be, you know, cutting the death rate. We, we have 100,000 or so deaths a year from this synthetic opioid drug. Once that number starts to go down appreciably in the future, we can give, we can give credit to lots of people maybe. But right now, it's not dropping. What about the defense engagement? Well, it's good to have defense engagement, but if you look at the history of U.S.-China defense engagement that has sort of um, been a, a seesaw since normalization, um, it was peaking during the Obama years. There's been a Biden freeze, and now finally they've agreed to you know, stop the big chill and go forward at all levels of dialogue. But we're not really seeing any real cooperation yet. Um, you know, The idea that they're going to stop their reckless behavior that was so well cataloged in the last China report out of DOD in the fall, um, you know, where it's gone up fivefold in the last couple of years. You know, we're not seeing that in the South China Sea, where they're still making right. very taunting, threatening noises, and they're still operating across the median line uh, around Taiwan as well. Um, and I don't know about the new idea of artificial intelligence uh, concern. I wrote about that as well uh, with my wife, Audrey, and uh, the national interest. Um, that is a big problem, both because they're experimenting with large language models that could lead them to think that they know what we're going to do next, and that could lead to miscalculation. But I think the concerns between Beijing and Washington right now on, on AI have more to do with autonomous weapons. Uh, and that's a very long conversation that won't be over this year. Um, you know, are we going to dampen, uh, you know, are we going to help cooperation in the Middle East? Well, we'd like to believe so. But again, as with Ukraine and Europe, uh, I don't think China uh, sees great value in helping us do more than keep a lid on wild escalation. You know, they're not really going to twist the right. arm of Tehran, uh, unfortunately. And that's even assuming that Tehran, you know, can twist the arm of every rebel group that they're arming. You know, I, I do think that the discussion uh, between uh, Admiral Dong Jun uh, and the defense minister Shoigu uh, this week between the Chinese and, and, and Russian defense chiefs uh, actually is maybe more important than the U.S.-China dialogue because it's highlighting the fact that these two strategic partners are really cooperating to try to tie Gulliver down uh, right. unless it's bad for business if you're China. Um, and I should uh, point out, right, I mean, speaking about strategic miscalculation, Israel calculated the closer it gets to China, the better off it's going to be. And then the Chinese basically said, hey, we're we're backing the uh, Arab side in this. And and to your point, whether on machine tools uh, or sending, you know, uh, uh, digi drones, 
they are surging capability over to the Russian side uh, compared with uh, anything that they're doing, right? I mean, heard from a Ukrainian commander who said, I mean, it's virtually impossible for us to get uh, Chinese-made drones, whereas the, you know, we know for a fact the Russians uh, have no problem getting their hands on that. I want to uh, shift uh, the conversation and, and go to you now, Doug. Uh, right. I mean, we long called for airstrikes uh, against the Houthis who are uh, challenging shipping. Washington eventually uh, did that. But word of those uh, attacks, unfortunately, leaked uh, from London uh, before uh, those strikes. Uh, the president, after uh, the Iranian-backed militia attacked Tower 22 uh, in Jordan, a strategically important site, uh, killing three Americans and wounding 40. The administration now leaked plans that it would strike uh, Iranian targets in Syria and Iraq but that the weather wasn't cooperating. Whiskey, tango, foxtrot, all right? This administration appears terrified to inaction over fears that there'll be a wider regional war. Why telegraph this? This was not accidental. Neither of these leaks were accidental. They were planned. What, what does this do? I mean, even if we strike them at this point, you've given the Iranians plenty of time to get out of there. I don't believe last time I checked, the Iranians didn't send us any engraved invitation. Hey, we're going to attack you at 2300 tonight. Make sure you have your guys in their bunkers. Well, the the, uh, the reports are that most of the Iranian uh, advisors, if you want to call them that, to these various uh, militias have bailed out. They've gone back. Um, we basically have, uh, and we've done this from the past, not just with this administration, where we essentially bomb a target which is empty and then we say we bombed them uh biden is in a tough position he he everybody is saying that uh we simply are dancing around iran because we still want uh, a nuclear deal that's never going to happen uh, he doesn't want a wider war the iranians are exploiting that and it got they now say that uh they didn't really tell these uh, th- this particular uh, resistance group to uh, go after the uh, the, the uh, Tower 22. But the, well, what do you expect the Iranians to say? I mean, why should they be telling the truth any more than the Chinese or the Russians do? Uh, the bottom line is uh, Biden is nervous. Uh, once again, we're deterring ourselves. Right. He knows he has to do something. So what they do is they leak. They won't kill many Iranians, but they'll say we hit back. Uh, And the Iranians are just going to laugh in our faces, I'm afraid. Well, not just the Iranians. You're sending a signal around the world that the United the world's preeminent military power is so uh, lacking in confidence. I mean, you kill American troops, you get hit in the head much harder, hard enough that you're not going to do it the next time around. And you don't get warning. And that's the end of that. By the way, there was a standoff during the Trump administration and uh, our guys wiped out their guys. Uh, And it was as simple as that. And I remember Jim Mattis basically saying, the Secretary of Defense Mattis at the time, saying, just go after them. Uh, So this is a very, very different policy. And you're right about the message around the world, particularly to Vladimir Putin. Would, would agree with you. Uh, Michael, I erred. You corrected me. Uh, Dutch uh, is no longer uh, the ranking on intelligence, so I stand corrected. Give us uh, a quick congressional sense on where we stand on lawmakers uh, with uh, Iran uh, and, and this entire episode. Yeah, One well, can like imagine there's a little bit of chum and red meat in the water now. 
there there is so you know and the, and the president's getting it from all sides and like i, I can't agree more with what you and, and dove have said i mean that we're i think exuding weakness and also giving the iranians and the proxy the chance to move everything because we know where everything is if they know we're coming uh, they're going to move it we're going to end up bombing empty buildings uh but yeah, you've got folks on the on the right like lindsey graham saying we got to hit iran hard and hit him now uh people like senator cornyn also feeling the thing that we got to target Tehran. But then you've got the folks in the Tucker Carlson wing of the party that, uh, you know, accuse Biden of being weak and an appeaser when they're really the guys that are weak and an appeasers because they're saying that, you know, Graham and um, Cornyn and their wing of the party are lunatics and they don't want to strike back and they presently want to withdraw uh, the U.S. presence uh, from the Middle East, which would give Iran the hegemony that, that they want in, in the region. Then Biden continues to take it from his own people. We talked previously about the letter that was sent to him about his authorities in Yemen. Senator Tim Kaine, uh, all week long, has been pr- saying he's pressing the White House over our military action in Yemen. Uh, in Yemen, uh, you know, right. he says there's no congressional authorization for the war in Yemen or uh, against the uh, Houthis in the Red Sea. And now, to make matters worse, um, Senator Cardin, who's the senior Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, saying that says that Biden should ask Congress for a war authorization uh, to stage right. a military campaign uh, against all the proxies in the Middle East because uh, he thinks that this will last longer than the 60 days contemplated under the War Powers Act. So this necessitates an AUMF. I mean, give me a break. I mean, Congress can't pass anything, and there's no way they're going to be able to pass an AUMF. So I think the president has the authority, and he needs to exercise that authority. And that, I think, is the problem right now. Uh, And, uh, you know, Josh Rogan, by the way, uh, kudos to Josh on a great piece he wrote about why these installations are actually important for those who are like, look, let's just withdraw this. People are at risk. There are 350 uh, folks um, that are at uh, Tower 22 supporting uh, forward operating bases uh, that are uh, countering ISIS uh, across uh, the region and helping our allies and partners. Obviously, and Dove, you discussed this last week about the Iraqis, you know, putting pressure on the United States to to um, withdraw from uh, Iraq. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Dove, um, in uh, let's go to the Gaza war. Uh, BB uh, isn't uh, budging, even as U.S., Israeli, Egyptian, and Qatari spy chiefs negotiate a ceasefire. Uh, meanwhile, the war is uh, continuing. The casualty toll uh, on um, the uh, Gazan side is at least 27,000. 2 million of 2.4 million have been dis- displaced after a dozen uh, United Nations Relief and Works Agency employees were implicated uh, in the October 7 attacks. I would note there were 13,000. Uh, uh, folks working uh, for uh, that UN agency alone uh, in in Gaza, uh, the United States, Germany, and others suspended uh, aid. Um, Jerusalem is irritating Egypt at this point because Israeli forces have moved into the Philadelphia uh, corridor, uh, and settlers are stepping up their attacks uh, on on in the West Bank against Palestinians. And in fact, Washington just imposed sanctions on four Israeli settlers uh, behind that violence. Uh, but unfortunately, those guys also have links uh, to to the government. Globally, there are a lot of questions uh, about long term support for Israel. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, in in the wake of all of this, uh, which I think Hamas pretty accurately calculated. Where do we stand right now? Where are we going? And what are the dynamics uh, driving this? You wrote a great piece in The Hill saying, hey, look, you, you may, Washington, you've still got to be engaged in the Middle East, even if you don't want to. Um, what's 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 your sense on, on where we are and where we're going on all of this? Well, there's a lot that has happened, as you just uh, listed. Let me start with the uh, Court of Justice. Uh, the International Court of Justice, as uh, you know, 
um, was uh, took up the, uh, the case that South Africa brought accusing Israel of genocide. Now, for the Israelis, for, frankly, for Jews all over the world, uh, genocide is, is a loaded term. Uh, the right. court <clears throat> ultimately did not say that it was genocide. It didn't even tell Israel to stop firing, uh, bombing rather, uh, Gaza and attacking it. It simply said it should cut back on the attacks uh, and it would continue to consider uh, whether, uh, you know, consider the South African case. Now, there's been a lot of concern, the United States, Britain, the usual uh, looking out against it. Uh, but, the you know, there are those who say that actually the uh, ICJ, given what it was given, uh, uh, acted in a reasonably fair way. And, and I've heard that actually from some uh, Jewish leaders and not left wing Jewish leaders, I should say, um, as well. I think the UNRWA thing um, sort of points out that uh, Israel still has a lot of support. Uh, people have known for years that UNRWA was very sympathetic to the, not just sympathetic to the Palestinians, but hostile to Israel with their educational programs, uh, right. basically supporting radical Palestinians. Yes, there were there were 12 that uh, have been caught out. Uh, I think at least one is, is already dead anyway. But what's interesting is that a lot of countries have suspended their uh, support for UNRWA, including the European Union. Right. which after all said and done is is quite a few countries. Japan is another one that might have surprised you. And so uh, you still see a lot of support for what you might call fairness. Um, a lot of people recognize that this Israeli government does not represent all of Israel. And so, uh, yes, Bibi is doing everything he can to isolate his country from the rest of the world, but the rest of the world uh, I think does see past Bibi to a great extent. Right now, what Biden just did—it uh, isn't just the four people. I mean, this is a blanket rule now, uh, and it, it's very, very important to note that a lot of these people on the West Bank who are committing these sorts of—I uh, would call them crimes—are uh, dual citizens, and right. the the regulation says you can't get your money, you can't come into the United States you're basically being essentially thrown out. And I think that for a lot of these uh, crazies on the West Bank who are dual citizens, that's coming as a shock. Netanyahu was furious. Uh, his right-wing ministers were furious. Um, but uh, And one could argue Biden's done this because he needs the votes in Michigan of the uh, Arab-American, Palestinian-American community. But whatever the reason. Uh, I think this is going to put a damper on what's going on on the West Bank. Uh, and finally, on the hostage negotiations, the uh, uh, Prime Minister, Foreign Minister Sheikh Abdullah uh, Al Thani was here in town uh, of Qatar. The uh, Prime Minister, Foreign Minister of Qatar, he holds both jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. And he's pursuing these negotiations in spite of uh, Bibi's obvious intransigence. Now, the, the latest on that is they're talking about a 35-day truce uh, for 35 hostages, possibly to be extended. The question then is, how many uh, uh, Palestinian uh, Hamas types are released in order to get those 35 out? 
Bibi is uh, being himself, very, very difficult. Uh, but the pressure inside Israel is growing because we're talking now about out of the 136 hostages, 27 are already dead. So you're right. down to 109. And a lot of people are saying, uh, are you going to fight this war until every hostage is gone? Uh, so there is much more pressure on him and it's building up every day. I, I, and and uh, right. I mean, this is uh, Gabi uh, Eisenkot. Uh, uh, who um, lost a son uh, in this uh, campaign. And I know other uh, senior former leaders who've lost um, uh, their sons uh, in this campaign as well, among others, obviously on October 7, um, is saying, look, I mean, we, we can't fight to the last hostage, right? I mean, we have to negotiate and free these uh, folks and there has to be a better war aim uh, ultimately. Um, Washington is considering- One other thing, one oh, other thing Vago, um, they just had some championships in Qatar and <clears throat> excuse me, and an Israeli named Yuval Freilich won the gold medal in fencing. And when he got up on the stand, they played Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem. Right. The Qataris are going out of their way to say we're trying to be literally an even handed negotiator here. And frankly, without the Qataris, I don't think you see a deal. Well, and I, I would uh, give them credit because they've always been a great intermediary nation on a lot of these fronts, uh, uh, because I mean, obviously, and also early recognition and the dialogue talks with Shimon Perez there uh, were truly mesmerizing. And I was actually in the region one time in, in Qatar for one of those and the other time in the UAE for that. Um, let me uh, very quickly ask you about this uh, initiative that's gaining ground, which is unilateral uh, U.S. and potentially international recognition of a Palestinian state as leverage to drive this to a two-state uh, solution. Um, that's politically fraught. We'll get to Michael, who's going to get the last word on this. Uh, what's what's your sense on the dynamics uh, around that? Well, you know, two states, it's hard to talk to Israelis about two states right now. Um, the administration is talking more and more about recognizing a Palestinian state, one could argue that it's hard to do that when you don't know what its boundaries are. On the other hand, the Palestinian Authority, based on the Oslo agreements of 91, uh, has control over some area. And the Israelis, at least officially, are saying they don't want to control Gaza. So you've already got some areas that you could say are the beginning of a Palestinian state. Uh, this is another form of pressure on Netanyahu. Uh, it's not clear they'll do it, but you know, it's kind of like the, the leaks about going after the Iranians. They are leaking this over in the administration over and over again. So something's going to happen there. Uh, again, it might tie in with votes in Michigan, Ohio, and elsewhere. Um, but nevertheless, uh, since Netanyahu absolutely refuses to talk about the day after. And I don't know how you don't talk about the day after when you've got so many people displaced, so many buildings destroyed. I don't know if 27,000 have been killed, but it's sure a lot of thousands. And so you've got to come up with something. If he refuses to do it, then I think Biden, this is another form of pressure that Biden can put on him. And a lot of people are saying... You, that Biden, by all means, support Israel, but you've got to put pressure on a prime minister who absolutely refuses to do anything other than protect himself. 
Well, I mean, it, and uh, we should know Tom Friedman really laid it out in uh, a great uh, piece. Um, uh, look, it's 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 not that there shouldn't be anger after what happened on October uh, seven, or not to take uh, do everything you can to secure uh, Israel and its people. Uh, the the issue is whether or not there's even a strategy as to what's going on, and that's not abundantly clear, right? Uh, as 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 we've discussed on this program, you have a right uh, to your security, you have a right to retaliate, but you don't really have a right to exact vengeance, which is what you know in the eyes of some, uh, this is unfortunately devolving to. And you have to look at what are the longer term uh, implications of that. Well, it, uh, it's not just that. It, you know, there are an awful lot of Israelis who think that the right prime minister ought to be Benny Gantz, who does think about these things. And and Netanyahu's popularity is, is dropping into the dirt precisely because uh, a lot of people in Israel, um, let's just talk about Israel, a lot of them suspect that uh, he deliberately wants to prolong this war. And so uh, your points are, are quite valid, uh, but one has to recognize that uh, in a sense, you've got a prime minister. And I've said this over and over on this show, and I'm not very popular in certain Israeli quarters for saying it, but you've got a prime minister whose interests may diverge fundamentally from the strategic interests of his country. Yeah, yeah well uh, said. Uh, last time I checked, Michael, we're in a political season, uh, and you had some thoughts on where we are and where we're going. Take it away and bring us home, if you will, Mr. Herson. Okay, so as I said in the beginning, beginning of the year, the more focus there is on Trump, the worse he's going to do. And there was a poll released this week uh, that showed actually Biden uh, with a six-point lead over Trump. Uh, so the tide does seem to be turning, although we still have a long way to go. Uh, Biden actually leads among women by 22 points, which is enormous lead. Uh, also shows that abortion is going to be a big issue in the upcoming election. Uh, what's really interesting, too, about this poll is that Nikki Haley leads Biden by 13 points. Uh, so, uh, you know, the Republicans are going to end up going with the candidate that really has the best chance of losing uh, against Joe Biden. And Trump looks like he's ahead uh, almost 30 points right now going into uh, South Carolina. Uh, more good news again for Biden today, which helps him. The, uh, over 350,000 jobs were added to the U.S. economy in January. Um, so the strong economic news continues to pump in. So I still think Biden is in, in a strong uh, position going into the election. Let me let me just ask one brief thing about Nikki Haley and and uh, we can end it. Uh, does, does but does she reasonably have any shot? Right. Are Republican primary voters going to look at a racehorse they got who can win this and make that change or do they stick with trump and go go over by the way i i i you know we'll, we'll see what happens in november right but your sense on you know or well, or is it really over for haley at this point look i hate to admit it i think it's over for haley but i think haley needs to stay in right i mean she can't leave after the south carolina primary which she's most likely going to lose uh, because you know, at that point, we would have had the Nevada caucuses, which she's not participating in. And only four of the states would have made the decision. We still have 46 to go. I think she owes it to her supporters to, to stick this out. Uh, but um, the problem with the primaries is that such a small portion of the Republicans are voting. I mean, it's just like about 15 percent of the registered voters are voting uh, or I mean, eligible voters are voting. And I think if people participated more in the primary, I think Nikki Haley would have a better chance. 
lot more uh, to discuss next week. We tried to make it a little bit less Groundhog Day-ish uh, today. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Hope everybody has a terrific weekend uh, and a great week. And we'll have you back on again next week. A reminder to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our own JJ Gertler. Uh, thanks very much again to our roundtable. Thanks very much again to our audience uh, for tuning in. Uh, hope everybody has a great weekend and look forward to having you back on the program again on Sunday for the business roundtable. Until then, all the best and we'll see you again soon.